So uh, before service started, um, I was back in the back with, uh, with Daniel, and we were looking at some, some jokes on unity. You know how, like, I feel like it's every uh, preacher's job to try to, like, open up a sermon with jokes. So I was looking at some jokes on Google, and my Google skills were not very good this morning because I, I found one on unity. It was talking about tying two chickens together, and there's a whole elaborate scheme about how you can tie two chickens together by their feet and then toss them over a clothesline, all right? Picture that with me. And they would be, u- they would be united, right? They're tied together, but they're not unified because these two chickens would like be bouncing back and forth and lots of feathers and squawking. And Daniel was like, he's like, stop, I'll stop you right there. He's like, Todd, like, how does that even make sense? Like, how can you even tie a chicken? And I'm like, I have no idea. I've never tried to tie a chicken. Has anybody ever tried to tie a chicken before? No, no, you, Elmer, you have? You have, Has it, does it work? Not, not very well. All right, that's my point. All right, um, that was good. Thank you. You helped me with that one. I appreciate it. I'll pay you later for that one. So um, I wanted to talk today about unity and purpose. Um, and man, can I just give God the glory? Um, we, we oftentimes, uh, we, we meet as a staff, and this week um, schedules didn't work out, so I didn't actually see Stephanie for a whole lot this week. I maybe saw her for like five minutes, and uh, we were crossing paths. But uh, we didn't even talk about songs to, to play, but the song... Um, about oneness, so you are one thing. The, the scripture I just shared in John 17, that's in my notes today. So God has something about unity already that's been expressed through worship. So praise God for how he works and speaks. But I want to start with a question for you guys after the bad chicken jokes. Does God desire us to be unified? Yes. All right, yeah, that was good. And can we like be unified in our response? Say it again with you. Yeah. Yes. yes, all right, thank you, yes. So just in case we need to be reminded and Uh, There's a scripture from Psalm 133. It's verse 1. How good, rich, or agreeable, and excellent. That's how what good means. It means all those things. Rich, agreeable, and excellent, and pleasant, sweet and delightful, like singing even. It is for brethren or brothers and brothers and sisters. So not just brothers and sisters, but husbands and wives and fathers to their sons and moms to their daughters and families, um, etc., to dwell together in unity. Now, if you are a parent or you've been, a, been parented by a, a mom or dad, you may have heard this scripture after a big argument. I know that I have that scripture practically. Eli's like groaning a little bit because he hears it too, but I practically have that tattooed. And I know it really well because whenever I see my boys fighting, which never happens, you know, I bring that scripture out. How good and how good and pleasant. I like the word and. It's not just good, not just pleasant, but good and pleasant. Uh, it is to, for brethren to dwell together in unity. And um, there's more. Verse 2 says this. It's like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. So when we have unity, when we, have, when we dwell together in unity, there's an anointing of priestly authority that comes with that. Now that's pretty powerful to think about when you have unity like that. And our unity is an opportunity to step into a calling far greater than ourselves. So think about that for a second. Just the aspect of dwelling together with a brother or sister is a way to increase the anointing that would flow down. It doesn't just flow down over us. There's a picture there where it kind of spills out all over. I mean, it sounds kind of messy in a way, but that's a cool picture that God's anointing um, and blessing flows because we dwell in unity. And here's a scripture that I was, oh yeah. So um, our plumbers here is Nate, Nate or Noah here. They're not here yet. Noah's here, all right. So union, right? That's a plumbing term, correct? It just means to connect two pipes together. I got to make sure I get that right. So our unity, uh, the, the union rather is a piece that couples two pipes together. And it's a, when that, those two, two pipes are coupled together, they can flow. God's anointing can flow. So if you want God's anointing to flow, who wants that? I want it. Yeah, we need to be unified and union together. All right, so Jesus also desires that um, in that whole passage of John 17, it's a passage he, he uh, speaks to the disciples. It's like his last words before he went to heaven. So John 17, and in verse 11, he says, Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so they may be one just as we are. Now, I, I shared earlier about, um, at the end of worship about another passage that says the same thing. So Jesus is really serious about unity. And he says, um, Keep us, uh, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so they may be one 
just as we are. And we, he's talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they have a oneness that he wants us to have. So I'm making an argument now that unity is a good thing, right? Um, so what do we do with the story of the Tower of Babel? Now, one of you guys, if you have your Bible or you can read up here on the screen, is Genesis 11, 1 through 9. I'll read this story for you. Now, all this earth used the same language and the same words. And it came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, Come, let's make bricks and fire them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven. Let's make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they will all have the same language. And this is what they have started to do. And now nothing which they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so they will not, be, not understand each other's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth, so they stopped building the city. Therefore it was named Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the earth, and from there uh, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Now, when I first read this passage, um, I have a real strong passion and heart for missions. And man, doesn't the Tower of Babel story kind of make missions more difficult? Like just, be, just be honest with, we can be honest about God. We can dialogue about what God's doing. Like, uh, you know, Caleb and Joanna, they're in a country we can't talk about while we're streaming, but they are in the process of learning a language or will be learning a language someday soon. Um, and then maybe it would be a whole lot easier if you could just talk to everybody in English. I know we have like Google Translate and that kind of stuff, but still, you need to learn a different language in order to speak to people from different countries. So I've been, I've been wrestling with this passage, and not, not just today, but in the past too. Like, God, if I want to be a missionary, I've got to learn another language. It's much more difficult now to speak and to share the gospel, the good news, when I, want, when I can't speak in my native tongue. And so, why, God, Why? Now, there's two ways, maybe there's a couple ways, but two main ways that we can look at this passage. We can say, um, God, I'm just going to dismiss who you are, and you're, you're just confusing. This is messed up, and I don't know what to do with that. I'm going to move on. Or the second way would be that we press in a little closer, and we say, huh, I wonder what's going on. Now, where's B. Diff at? When I grew up in a church, Brian, you're around. There he is. So God is good. All the time. God is good. All right, so there's a passage there that we used to say it a lot growing up in a church. Um, and it's a phrase that is good to think about when we talk about tough passages like Babel. If God is good all the time, the reality is when we see a, an action that God did that's perceived as weird or a consequence that we don't understand, we can say, uh, that doesn't make any sense. Or we can say, huh, I wonder if what God was trying to do was actually a good thing. I wonder if what God was trying to do was actually preventing something worse from happening. And that, that's how it opened my eyes to see that God, many times, all the time, is saving us from ourselves. We are our own worst enemy, I've heard it said. Um, otherwise, if we, go, we can go down a dangerous, slippery slope of being multiple choice about the Bible. Well, I don't like that passage. That doesn't make sense to me, so I'm not going to follow that. Or I'm going to like this passage in the Bible, but not that one. No, we can't do that. So let's go back to the people of Babel. They wanted to establish a name for themselves. What was the problem with that? The problem was they didn't want to involve God in their purpose, right? They had the right unity, right? They said there was lots of uh, third, there was lots of inclusive language like we, let us go, let us do this thing. And there was tons of unity, but they were all about the wrong purpose. Their purpose was really centered around a word called pride. They wanted to make a name for themselves instead of making a name for God. And they decided that their purposes were higher than anything else, even God. Now, that's a pretty scary place to be. And the irony of this unity for them was they thought they would make a name for themselves to avoid being scattered. They thought, if only I establish something really big and strong, and it'll make a name for us, and no one will, will, remember, or no one will forget our names in history. Now, we remember them in the Bible because of their mistake. That's the wrong way to be remembered, I guess. But, um, you know, they... They were scattered around the earth. And so, to summarize, they had unity, right? But they, what they were building and establishing was not God's purpose. And back to the passage I talked about earlier in John 17. Father, keep them in your name. This is Jesus' cry. And so, he's, he desires uh, us to be in God's name. Now, what does it mean to go in God's name? You've probably heard this before, but to be an ambassador 
is to go in somebody's name. What does that mean to be an ambassador? It means to represent something. But you don't just represent them and do your own thing, right? What if I represent the United States as an ambassador, like if I'm actually an ambassador with a capital A, a title of an ambassador, I can't just do my own little thing when I'm in the country, you know, I pick a country, Canada, my favorite uh, Canadian, Don Boyd, is watching, but you know, Canada, I can't just go as an ambassador to the US and like do my own little thing. Like I'm gonna start and represent America and uh, say we're, we're preaching communism. You know, America is not communist, we're a democracy, and we, I can't do my, have my own purposes on to what God has for us. And so we are responsible as ambassadors to not only be unified, to promote the purpose. I just say that again, because I'm stumbling over my words. Promote the purpose of what we're called to do. So, and we're also, the purpose and the unity is the one that's Father and Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. So such a unity is marked by intimacy and obedience, right? You can't just have one without the other and a sharing of both unity and purpose. Now, um, I want to share a brief history lesson. I hope you guys like history. Maybe you'll like it more, or well, hopefully more, after this is done. But Pastor Steve's been talking about King David, right, in a series. I think he's up to like, like 26 weeks of talking about King David. And King David is a thousand years B.C. Everybody know what B.C. is, right? Before Christ. All right, yeah. So we're all, so it's a thousand years before Jesus came. Um, or if you, and if you add up, you know, approximately, we're in 20 23. I had to say, think about that for a second. That's kind of scary. 2023, you know, we're approximately 3,000 years ago this happened, all right? So, uh, sorry, David, King David was 1,000 BC or before Christ. And, um, you know, he established King David. He, he had a dream. He had a heart's desire was to establish a place for God to dwell in the temple, in the tabernacle. Now, David didn't get to see it built. Um, he didn't get to see it built, but his son Solomon uh, built the temple, and he established something really, really powerful. Um, and it was a beautiful place where the presence of God dwelled. So this all happened around 1000 BC. It was David's temple, um, and Solomon built it, but it was established, and it was something good. So speaking of establishing, I want to be a part of a move of God like that, right? Where there's a, a move that somebody contended for and worked, and I want to be a part of what God is doing. So stay tuned for that. Um, so back to David and Solomon. Unfortunately for these guys, they didn't create something that lasted. They create, they built a temple. It was dedicated. The presence of God was there. It says that it was the word, used the word Shekinah glory. So it was a glory you could feel. There was a presence of God that was so thick it was like a fog. Tell you what, that's pretty insane and pretty crazy cool that it would happen like that. But if we read the story all through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it's a story of sadness because we see um, their rule, David and Solomon, and the presence of God that they carried, the manifest presence of God that they carried, slip away. The opposite of unity happens. So 10 tribes out of the 12 split and went their way. They called those, those guys went north. They called them the northern kingdom. And two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they went south, called the southern kingdom, coincidentally. Um, but the northern kingdom, they went and did their own thing. They practiced their own religion, their own way. The southern kingdom, like I said, was made of Je Judah and Benjamin, but they too turn away. And so this happens in a span of a long time, 400 years. And so by um, 606 BC, uh, 606 BC, before Jesus came to earth, God removed his covering of protection from Israel. Well, really, they ran away from his presence and, and covering in, in their behavior, in their attitudes. Um, and the 10 tribes, also called Israel, they were conquered first by the Assyrians. You with me so far? And then the G tribes of Judah and Benjamin, sometimes it's called Judah, are conquered by the Babylonians. And in 587 BC, the temple was destroyed and Jerusalem falls. So I know I'm running a lot of numbers and names by you. Trust me, this, this will make sense in a few minutes. Um, so things were bad. Um, the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 29.10, you re may recognize 29.11, but we'll get there for a second. But 29.10, Jeremiah marks the year 606 BC as the beginning of 70 years of punishment, of exile for the Jewish people. Uh, I don't know about you, but 70 years seems like a long, long time. Imagine for a second that you're not you know, just a newborn, you hear 70 years, that's a long time for a punishment. It may seem dark and heavy, and it's because it is, it's dark and heavy. The Jewish people chose division. 
They chose disunity from both each other, like the split from the north and the south, you know, and even more importantly, the division and disunity they had from God. So even in the midst of dark and despair, we have a God who reminds the Jewish people that he hadn't abandoned them. That's where we get the famous passages from Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, plans for welfare, not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. So we have a crazy thing. Jeremiah 29, 10 promises destruction, promises exile, promises punishment. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I, I have plans for hope or welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. How do we reconcile the two? Well, let's, let's realize that God has never abandoned us even when we think he has. So during this dark and crazy time of Israel, when they're exiled, when they're punished for what they've done, we have stories like Daniel. You know, who knows Daniel in the lion's den? He emerges during the time as one faithful to serve and worship God, even in the midst of his darkness. And God shows up too. He's literally in the fire with some of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I can't think of Rakshak and Benny too from VeggieTales, if you like VeggieTales. You know, so how about Esther? All during the same period of time, there's this woman named Esther, and she is one who's raised up for such a time as this to save the people God calls his own. During that time, Babylon itself is conquered, and the Persians come to rule. So even Babylon, who had conquered Israel first, was also conquered too. They were ruled now by the Persians. So when we desire to establish something like unity and with unity and with purpose, we've got to see ourselves like Esther's for a second, place them on the earth for such a time as this. Now, I know it's a fun exercise, and sometimes it's fun to like talk about this in a car ride. Like, wouldn't it be fun to, to like live in the Bible times? like to live with uh, Jesus during his time? Or what about, you know, pick and choose another era, the medieval times with the knights and the round table and riding horses and the armor, you know, and the swords? Or maybe you're a, a guy who likes 1800s, like the idea of settling out west, you know, traveling out in a wagon and going out west and discovering new land and new territory, planting roots out in a new, new place, doing your own thing, making it work. Or what about, you know, the, the U.S. in the 1950s, right after World War II, you know, we have uh, the, 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 the elimination of a huge threat in the form of the Axis powers, and now we have a, a, a huge boom in the, in the country, and things are right. And you could probably think of a time and an age and a place that might be fun to consider, but the reality is we're placed for such a time as this. Each of us are. Whether we believe it or not, whether we want it or not, we are placed for such a time as this. Um, we need to see ourselves as strategically placed for, such a, for something much bigger than ourselves. So let's say you're the Esther, all right? Let's say you see the Esther calling in somebody else, right? We all have this calling. It's not just uh, people named Esther, not just women. Men, you got to have, have it too. Well, you can be the Mordecai in somebody's life. Mordecai was Esther's uncle. Sorry, he was his cousin. He was her cousin. And he called out identity, he called it into her and placed into her uh, what he has seen in her. So that's the, the definition of prophecy, right? It's just to speak edifying encouragement words over somebody else. So we can be Mordecai to people and we can receive the Esther calling for our lives and establish that um, for such a time as this. All right, so that was a side note. Esther and Daniel, they were two bright spots, what was otherwise a really dark part, part of, the, of Israel and Judah's history. Um, so finally... Remember our timeline before from at 536 BC, if you're doing your math in your head, so take 606 minus 536. Anybody know what that is off the top of your head? Eli, do you know? 70 years. So exactly the promise that God made in Jeremiah 29.10. 70 years, the first Jewish exiles are given permission to go back to their homeland and begin to rebuild. So they were in Babylon, they were in prison, they were exiled there, they had witnessed the Babylonian Empire in all its grandeur, but they weren't home. And it, finally, in 536 BC, they were given permission to come back. So let me inter introduce for you guys, yeah, I wrote that out, God keeps his promises 70 years. We don't have to worry about God mess messing up on dates and confusing us, but he, he keeps his promises. So Moving on, I want to introduce you guys to a few key characters. Um, whoops, I'm ahead of myself a little bit, but there's a couple characters that I want to talk about. Um, first of all, there's Ezra. Ezra's a priest. He's a scribe and he's a teacher of the law. 
It says in Ezra 7.10 that, he, that Ezra had firmly resolved to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. Most scholars believe that Ezra wrote the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, so he's also a faithful scribe to write the testimony of God's workings that's happening. There's also Jeshua, who was a priest, Zerubbabel, who is an administrator or governor, political leader. There's Zechariah and Haggai, two prophets speaking words of instruction, encouragement, and warnings of the Lord to the returning Jews. So there's a couple characters I want to introduce you guys to. Um, so Ezra 3, uh, starting in verse 2, says this, Then Deshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers, rose up and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So where are my contractors in the room? Who's, who's a builder? There we go. We've got a couple here. So I had JT build some logos for me. Go ahead and run those, that, that first logo up for me. So we had uh, the Jazadek Brothers Incorporated, Carpentry and More. Thank you. That was a good quote there, buddy. So the Jazadek Brothers were Jeshua and his brothers, um, son of Jazadek. And then we have the next one there. Shealtiel brothers. I was trying, I was joking with Michael, I was trying really hard not to swear when it says Shealtiel. It's a mouthful of a word to say. Thank you, God, for helping me. Uh, Shealtiel brothers incorporated. We love bricks. I like that. Thank you, buddy. They, are, they were led by their foreman, Zerubbabel. Just say that with me, Zerubbabel. That's a hint, mouthful as well. Um, so verse three, they set up the altars on the foundation because they were terrified of the lands and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Now, I wouldn't be like back in children's ministry we didn't have some illustrations. Sorry, camera, for moving there, keeping you busy there, Steve. But so they built a foundation, an altar. I'm going to put this on the floor. So maybe if you're watching from home, you won't be able to see this later on. Well, I'll put it up here. How's that? But another reason to come see in person. So I should have had bricks, but here's some, uh, it's an altar, right? So just picture that for a second, an altar they built, okay? Um, I'll like some illustrations. Uh, these sacrifices on the altar were continuous, and they were a place of security and strength for the people who were moving into the territory. Remember verse 3 said they were set up an altar on its foundation because they were terrified of the people of the lands. So what does an altar do? What does an altar do that they would sometimes provide security? Well, what do you do on an altar? You sacrifice things, and it's a form of worship. So worshiping God is the most secure place to be. They understood that. They understood the first thing we have to do before we do anything else, before we set up internet access or plumbing or anything else, is to set up a secure place through worship. So here's a question for you as you consider this. Have you created a stronghold of worship and praise in your heart and in your household and in the territory you desire to occupy? So we don't sacrifice animals anymore. Everybody says, thank God. Thank God that we don't sacrifice animals anymore. But what do we do? Hebrews um, 13, 15 reminds us that we should continually bring a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips, praising his name. So the word continually, just like those guys, when they came, the first thing they did was set up an altar. They continually offered sacrifices on it. And we need to do the same, continually offering praise. So much so that it's the only thing that comes out of our mouth. Praise, praise, praise. So, they're off to a good start. Worship and praise is the key to establishing territory in a new place. I can't help but think of Caleb and Joanna again, because the first thing they, they were doing, one of the key things they were doing before they were evangelizing, before they were doing anything else, was to set up a place of worship. And where they're going, they set up a house, a house where they can minister with instruments and declare his praise. And they found out, you know, through history, and there you can watch some, some awesome videos about how God moves, that when they tried to do it the, the opposite way of coming in with evangelism first, it just didn't work. They had maybe one or two people come to know Jesus, but when they did things in the proper order, when they established an altar of worship and praise first, things began to happen. They had people come up to them with visions of who Jesus was. Jesus was doing the work for them. So there's a reminder that we need to establish a stronghold, establish a place of worship and praise before we start to do anything else. We were, as a family, contending for things, and, and we took some time to, to worship and pray together. And man, there's something powerful about just doing that as a family, about grabbing a guitar, or if you don't have a guitar, just to sing together and worship Jesus when you're contending for things. So seeing God work in our lives 
always establishes, always starts with establishing a place where God can be worshiped. All right, so we had the little altar over there, all right? Um, and Ezra 3, I'll start in verse 8. So Ezra 3, starting in verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of their brothers, the priests and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites who were 20 years old and upward oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua with his sons and brothers stood with, united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Hanadab with their sons and brothers of Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, so I also have foundation of the temple. Put this over here. So foundation of the temple. Thanks Eli for grabbing these this morning for me. See that okay, hopefully. They established the foundation of the temple. The priesthood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. So they were establishing something again like they've seen it before with King David. Verse 11, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good for his favor. It's upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout of joy when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many um, shoulder around for joy so that the people could not distinguish the, so the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of weeping. So we get a picture here, right? Just, just picture for a second what's going on here. We have uh, the people who had just come exiled. They had probably been born in exile, some of them, but others had been really young when they were exiled. They were maybe, you know, teenagers or even younger. So that by, by the time they are freed and given permission to go into the new land or back into their homeland, rather, they were old. And isn't it crazy that um, they may have seen and remembered in their mind's eye how awesome and how amazing Solomon's temple was. And it was, it was gorgeous, it was beautiful, it was, it was uh, splendid in gold and jewelry, jewels rather, and it was beautiful. And then to come to see, to start just the foundation. Now foundations are an important thing, but it was just a foundation. And besides the fact, it was small. It was smaller than Solomon's temple. It wasn't the same. Didn't have the same impact. And so you see the picture of a mixture of praise with young people coming in and saying, this is awesome. We need this again. To the old people saying, well, it's not like it was before. And what I got from that, we often have expectations of what a move of God should look like based on our own past experiences. Um, and this isn't just for people who consider themselves old. If you've been in the church for longer than five minutes, things are always changing. And it's serious. We, we get our, our rhythms and our ways and we have expectations. And I've heard it said that the, short, the quickest way to stop a revival, and we all want revival, but the quickest way to stop it is to say, it hasn't been done that way before. And so these people are in a, a place of saying that. It's, it's not like it was before. And in Ezra and Zerubbabel's day, Zechariah, remember Zechariah is the prophet who's speaking words of encouragement to them. And Zechariah 4.10 says this, Do not despise the day of, of small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. So possibly Zerubbabel was a mason or a, a bricklayer, you know, he was um, starting this, and we, just like Zerubbabel, we, just like the people in, at, at that time, need to also don't despise the small beginnings. This can be big picture, like the move of God in a church, in a community, in a region, but also small picture. How many of you guys are walking with somebody, and you're just seeing small beginnings in their life? How many of us to ourselves do that, too? We're like, God, you did a work in my life, but it's not, it's not very big. It's It's small. Maybe you've been contending for something in your own thought life. Like, God, I don't want to think that way anymore. I don't like it anymore. Or maybe I've been sinning, and I don't want to sin that way anymore. And I, I'm not there yet. And so we can't despise the small beginnings. For the Lord rejoices in the work. Can you imagine that the Lord rejoices in the work in our own hearts? He rejoices for Zerubbabel and that altars. So even in the smallest of beginnings, God rejoices in our return to him. And in our desire to establish a place where he can inhabit. 
So the foundation is established, right? So we have the altar over here where they're offering sacrifices still continuously day and night. And then we have a foundation that's established, okay? So um, the Jewish people after this point began to have trouble with their enemies. How many of you guys have ever done something, had a move of God in your life, and like the day later, you get an attack? How about it? Um, I can think of numerous examples in my own life. Matt, we, uh, I th- think of um, Hannah and I, we desired to, to start a small group about marriages, and what well, we had the biggest fight of our life the week after, you know, the marriage small group started, um, you know, or, or as you were thinking about, it, I don't think it haven't even started yet. And, you know, think about how um, God, when he moves in our hearts, immediately the enemy doesn't like it. The enemy of our soul, the devil, is never happy when territory is taken from him and especially unhappy when we desire to establish something. He would, yeah, maybe he's like uh, a little worried if the devil, right, if we establish, you know, just the altar. But when we start making things serious now and establish a foundation where God can dwell, now he's getting worried. I don't know about you, but I want to worry the devil. I don't know if I like the attacks that that brings, but I want to worry the devil a little bit. How are you? Are you guys with me? Or a lot bit. Is that okay? Yeah, all right. Thank you. Um, so what did the Jews do? And this is in Ezra uh, chapter 4. So starting in verse 1. Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the fathers of households and said to them, let us build with you. For like you, we seek your God, and we have sac- been sacrificing to him since the days, I'm not even going to try to say that word, as Her- Hadon, I did try it, king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Now, a quick reminder, remember what I said about the northern kingdom, right? The 10 tribes that went north, and we have the 10 tribes who went, sorry, the two tribes that went south, 12 tri- tribes total, 10 plus 2. The 10 tribes that went north to Assyria, they got they not only were uh, taken captive, but they were assimilated into the Assyrian people group, and they kind of did their own thing. In fact, later on, many years later, when Jesus was on earth, they became, some of them became what is known as the Samaritans. So they, they were, and the Samaritans, uh, as Jesus talked to the woman at the well who was a Samaritan, they were so close to uh, following God, they, they mixed in some of what God um, was asking them to do with the pagan rituals of the land. So more on the mixture in a little bit. So yeah, 2 Kings 17.33 says this, of these people, they feared the Lord, yet they were serving their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from among whom they had been taken into exile. So you see the temptation? They served God, but they also kind of created gods and served them too. So remember that passage I talked about earlier and what Stephanie was singing about this morning? Jesus prayed that we be one, like he and the Father were one, not adding anything else, just one. So they thought a way they, they, they thought that they could get away with mixing up religion. Um, now I have to tell you a story. Uh, I was camping a few weeks ago with Pastor Steve. We took some whole bunch of people in the river in the Delaware, and um, I was tasked with making breakfast. Now I'm sharing this story because with a little bit of fear and trembling, because if I ever invite you over for dinner, you shouldn't fear my cooking, but I'll just share this, okay. So I was cooking oatmeal. Now we had, um, we had, you know, this powerful gas stove, and I was cooking the oatmeal, and the oatmeal actually got a little frozen because it was that cold, which is a good thing. You don't want oatmeal to spoil with the milk in it. And I was trying to cook it up, and I realized that it wasn't cooking very fast. And so I thought, I was, I'm going to turn, turn up the gas a little more and cook it. And I was stirring it. I was, I was keeping, I was attentive to the oatmeal. And, and then I realized something, and it's a horror of every cook, if you've ever cooked before with anything milk-related, that there was, as I was cooking, I was scraping something from the bottom of the pan. I'm like, oh no. Oh no. And I had, only had one big pot of oatmeal, right? It was like a pretty massive, like, two, like a two-gallon pot enough to feed like 15 people. We had all those people there. And I was, I was scraping at the bottom. And at first, I, I was like, ah, it's probably just like, you know, um, thicker oatmeal at the bottom. All right. And I thought, I was thinking, like, I can just keep mixing it in and stirring it in, and it's going to be fine. It'll be diluted. It, no one will be able to tell. And then I thought I'd gotten away with it, honestly. I, I really did. Until Jaden because he was the first honest person in my life. Thank you, buddy, for being a first for him. He came up to me, uh, and he said, he, he, um, he sniffed it, first of all. He's like, Dad, this smells burnt. I'm like, oh, no. Well, if it smells burnt, 
it tastes burnt too, okay? So, and I was, side note, Taya, bless her heart, she came up to me and, and she's like, Mr. Todd, thank you for breakfast. And I was like, there's, you, girl, you've got to have everything out of your, in your heart to say thank you, because it was awful. I was like, yeah, you can try to eat it myself, and I was hungry, you know? So uh, here we are. The leaders of the 10 northern tribes had tried to do that with religion. They had tried to do that with following God. They had tried to mix God, capital G, with the gods of their own creation, right? And it didn't work, much like my oatmeal. I can mix it and stir it and try to pretend it didn't happen, but it didn't work for them. Uh, they, now, what did the leaders of Judah and Benjamin do? Back to the story. They refused to attempts to partner with their enemy, right? If you go back to that passage, um, sorry, go ahead. They said that in Ezra 4, that they refused to partner with them. So they threw out any attempt at mixing the bad with good. Like I should have done with my oatmeal, right? I should have thrown it away. We should have had like peanut butter and jelly for breakfast, which one of them did. So they were on the right track there. So we never try to win by trying to build the kingdom of God with a mixture of holy and unholy ways. So in Ezra 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, the enemy had tried to stop the builders, right, through a, a series of a bunch of different things. I'm going to turn there for a second. Ezra 4. And I'm going to try to summarize a, a, a bunch of things happening for time's sake. So they, they, uh, they first tried to go and partner with them directly. Thankfully, Judah and Benjamin said, no way, we're not partnering with you. And the next step, the enemy tried to to um, you know, write a letter to their king saying, these Jews over here, they're trying to rebel. They're trying to do their own thing. And they tried to stop it by sending letters to the king. Well, long story short is that in chapters four and five, they stopped. The, the, the um, building contractors of Zerubbabel and Jeshua stopped. They were, for whatever reason, they were either scared, they were intimidated, but they stopped building. So this, the altar and then the the foundation of the temple, it still lay as just a foundation. Now, I, I go to the beach and I see foundations of houses that like year after year, they just stay a foundation. That's a pretty sad place for a house to be. There's a lot of hope for it, right? But year after year after year, if nothing happens to it, it's not really useful to be just a foundation. And um, they almost succeeded. The, the almost succeeded because we're getting to the next exciting, exciting points. Um, so we have now um, when the prophets, this is chapter 5 in Ezra, when the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now Haggai, this is the book of the Bible that's probably dusty in my Bible because I don't know if I've ever read a whole lot of Haggai, but this week I was studying it a lot. So Haggai in chapter 1 verse 4 says this, it is, is it time, he's talking to the people of Jerusalem, he's talking to Zerubbabel and Joshua, is it time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, remains desolate? Now let me back up for a little bit. The, uh, the Jewish people who were living there at the time, you know, they, were, they, they didn't want to build the temple anymore because they were, they were kind of intimidated by their enemies, the people from the north, and instead of building the temple, instead of pressing on with that work, they got comfortable, right? They built paneled houses. It wasn't just like tents, temporary. It was like a serious establishment of houses. And Haggai was kicking them in the butt. How many of us need a kick in the butt sometimes, right? I, yeah, um, thank you. You know, because the people hadn't finished what they had started. It was still sitting as a foundation rather than a finish. Um, and God was calling them to account through Haggai. So the altar was finished, remember, but the temple wasn't yet complete. It was still a foundation. So what's the, what's the altar represent in our lives? What does the altar represent for these people? Yeah, I think I heard worship in there, right? Worship, sacrifice, yeah. And what does the temple signify then? It's a place of where God can dwell. Say that word with me, dwell, dwell. He doesn't want to just have worship. He wants to dwell in our lives. And here's a crazy thing to think about. Now, Hang with me for a minute or two while I explain this. I believe that God can't bless what he can't dwell in. Now, let me qualify that. Maybe if you're a student of the Bible and you're immediately thinking of Matthew 5, 45, where Jesus says that his father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, all right? So you're like, how do I reconcile those two passages? Because in Haggai, let me read for a second here, 
what you're like, what, what's going on here, Todd? Let me, let me read Haggai for a second. I was getting ahead of myself. Shouldn't do that. So Haggai, Zephaniah, Zechariah. It's there, it's there, coming. Nope, too far. If only they had iPads with scriptures in there, that would be helpful. Yeah. So, it is Haggai chapter 1. He says this to the people. He says, um, You have started an ambitious project, but behold, it comes little. When you bring it home, I'll blow it away. Why, declares the Lord, is because my house, which remains desolate, while each of you returns to his own house. Right? So they've gotten comfortable with building, they've gotten comfortable with a problem. It was a problem that the temple hadn't been built yet, but they were comfortable with that. They kind of made homes and they were satisfied with seeing it unfinished. And verse 10 in Haggai 1 says this, therefore, because of you, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought in the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, and what the ground produces on mankind, on cattle, and on all the products of the labor of your hands. Ouch! That's some tough words. And so, yeah, how do we reconcile that with Matthew 45 where it says that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous? So um, I'll explain it this way. My parents have a timeshare. You guys may have timeshares or at least know what timeshares are, right? So timeshares are a place where you can go. uh, It's a home you own, right? You have a deed to it, but you only own it for a few weeks, and they're pretty awesome. I'm pretty blessed to have a timeshare. My, my parents have a timeshare we can use. Um, but there's, there's restrictions to the home. I can't go there whenever I want. I have to call ahead, or my dad has to call ahead and talk to somebody and get it, get it uh, get signed up for it. And there's a limited benefit to the timeshare. Now, um, this is what God was talking about when he was talking about uh, through Haggai, that I don't want God to have just a timeshare access to my life, right? I don't want God to have just like, God, you can have a week here in June or we're in August now. In August, we go in timeshare in June. That's what I was thinking in June. But God, uh, you, can have, you can have just uh, access to my heart for Sunday morning from 10 to 12 if uh, they, Todd doesn't preach too long. Um, you know, but no, I want God to be in a place where he can dwell. I want his full-time presence in my life and his full-time blessing. You know, we can have both of those things. There's a song that, that's, that said that I don't want uh, your blessings, I want you. And the reality is I do want God's blessings in my life, right? We all want God's blessings and we can have them both. When we get God's presence, his change, we get the benefit and the power of his presence. So the good news is for Zerubbabel and for us, Zerubbabel says in Haggai 1, verse 12, right after they had just said that blessings are being withheld because of their inaction, Zerubbabel and the son of Shealtiel and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, just as the Lord, their God, had sent them. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. So praise God. Um, they began to rebuild. We're back into Ezra 5, verse 2. So these two guys, Zerubbabel and Joshua, rose up and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. None of us like to be corrected, but man, I know that if I'm corrected, I want to make sure I'm obedient to the correction of God. And these guys were, they have a great example for us. So I'm going to keep reading here for a little bit. So at that time, uh, Tatanay, the governor of the province beyond the Euphrates River, and Wow, there's another word that I have trouble saying. Shethar, Bonzanai, and their colleagues came to them, spoke to them as follows. Who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and finish the structure? Do you see a pattern here? Whenever there's another move of God, whenever they begin to start building the temple of God, you know, they, they had just probably started adding a couple another layer of bricks on the, on the temple. The enemy comes and attacks them again. It isn't just that the way, way it works. And who issued you a decree? the attacker, the accuser says to them, to rebuild this temple and finish the structure. And then we, meaning Judah, told them accordingly with the names of the men who were reconstructing the building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and that, they did not stop them until the report could reach Darius. And the decree concerning it could be sent back. So these people, 
This time they got it right. They weren't intimidated anymore by the enemy, and they started rebuilding, and nothing was going to stop them. Well, the benefit this time was they didn't have people like Liz uh, who were in the postal service, and the letters take a long time to get back to the king and back and forth. So the letter they wrote to Darius, and this is verse 6 down to verse 13. And um, it just, they said, they, they sent the report, sorry, ver- starting in verse 7, they sent the report to him in which it was written as follows. To Darius the king, all peace. May it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with large stones and beams are being laid in the walls. And this work is being performed with great care and is succeeding in their hands. Man, talk about a compliment. Even from their enemies, they're receiving compliments for how well they're building it. Then we asked these elders and said to them as follows, who issued you, remember this is the accuser writing this letter to Darius, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked in their names so as to inform you in order that we might write down the names of the men who were in charge. So they answered, they were kind of writing down their name. You ever see that? Like uh, you ever see somebody said, what's the name of your manager? Who are you? What's your name again? Like they were doing that. It was pretty serious. We also asked them their names, like I said, verse 11. So they answered as follows, saying, we are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and we were building the temple that was built many years ago, which, is, which the great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. So chapter 6, verse 1, King Darius issued a decree. So we have King Cyrus who had first, who had first uh, exiled them, then King Darius is the new king in place, in charge. King Darius issued a decree, and a search was conducted. So um, let me catch you up a little bit for a second if you're, if you're losing tracks. The, the accuser has sent a letter to Darius saying, these people are saying they had uh, permission from you or from the king before you, and we don't know what's going on. We can't find it. And Darius, he didn't know either. They didn't have the abilities of Michael Brewer, IT support, who can create servers to find things. They couldn't find it. So they had a search uh, conducted, and where the treasures were found, or the archives where the treasures were stored in Babylon, and Finally, I'll skip forward for a little bit. They found the scroll. They found the scroll where Cyrus has said, concerning the house of the Lord of God in Jerusalem, let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt, and let us foundations be repaired. Its height being 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits. So that's a lot to say. A letter from the Jews was sent to Darius, who was ruler at the time, and Darius was reminded of the commands of Cyrus. And because of their favor they had, with Darius, the Jews were given a blessing to rebuild. So in that whole little exchange of letters, right, and of accusations, we, when we find ourselves, I think there's a truth there, we find ourselves bogged down with the heaviness of warfare, warring in life. There's something powerful what Darius did. He looked back at the history of the Jewish people. Now, the great battles of our spirit can be settled if we look back at our history um, I preached a couple years ago a message uh, called Don't Look Back. And I remember Pastor Steve saying that if you eventually preach long enough, you'll contradict yourself. But it wasn't, it wasn't talking about not looking back ever. It's talking about, you know, Lot's wife, you look back. That's another story, though. There's times for us to look back. How do we look back? Like, like Darius, he looked back through the archives. Have you ever thought about looking back when you're in the, in the midst of a battle, of looking back through, first of all, the Bible, you know, look back at the Bible and the God's word, not just um, for the truth of what he, he writes in his words, but I often look back and just read stories like we're reading today of Ezra, who was bold, of Zerubbabel, who was bold and took a stand. And if you don't know where to start with the heroes of the faith, look at Hebrews 11. It's like a whole listing of who the heroes were. So the Bible is a place of truth, of not only how God worked, of how he did it then, but also giving us faith to how he can do it again. So looking back in our history starts with looking back in the Bible. The second way we can do it is through God moving in our own lives, in my own life, through the word of testimony, right? So how many of you have ever written down a testimony that God has done? you ever written it down or remembered it? Yeah, it's very powerful. Um, we have started doing this uh, as a family of writing testimonies down. I know that we are good at doing big testimonies, right? Like 
Maybe God granted you a house miraculously. He did for us, you know, and you write that down. Maybe he, he uh, saw you through with a healing. Praise God, Michael. You can write that down. But what about the little testimonies too? You know, what a, what a great rhythm. I asked this question a few weeks ago through Pastor Steve, uh, through your questions answered, and I said, you know, what are some rhythms? And I remember him reminding us of a practice that's good of each night before you go to sleep, instead of drifting off to sleep with the worries of tomorrow, uh, drift off to sleep with the testimonies of what God has done during the day. Remind yourself well, as you go to sleep about what he's done, that he's done it today, this past day, and he can do it again tomorrow. So that's the second way of moving in our own life. It's a way of establishing a new rhythm, a new rhythm of how God shows up in the big and the small, right? So the third way of looking back in our history is to revisit our prophecies. So testimonies are the things that God has done in our lives, and prophecies are words that other people have spoken into our life. How many of you guys have ever received a prophecy before? Just curious who, who all has. All right, like so half of us have. All right, so we need to get some prophets back in. Or, this is a cool challenge, we can speak into others. So who didn't re- receive a prophecy yet? Maybe, now we'll do the reverse question. If you haven't rec- ever received a prophecy yet, Okay, no one's going to raise their hand on that one. But okay, now you're scared. But we can start prophesying now. But what are a word of prophecy? A word of prophecy is a word of God speaking to us. Um, and Hannah recently did this while we were away, while the men of the house were away, or most of the men were away on the canoe trip. She took some time with the Lord and she categorized a bunch of prophecies over the years. And um, she wrote it out in a, in a journal form, and she highlighted things with common themes. She underlined things. Um, she summarized it with notes. It was a really well done. Like, it looked pretty. It looked a lot better than I could ever do. It was encouraging for her and for us as we read through them. We're like, God is faithful back then, and God has read our mail. I mean, he knows us. He knows who we are. He knows our history, and he's speaking encouraging words constantly. So, there's many different ways, ending with prophecy and an encouragement is to speak life into other people. You can be that prophet to speak life into somebody else and just hear from the Lord and speak into that. Um, so back to our stories, right? So Darius uh, had give, given them permission to, by looking back in the archives and seeing that and reminding himself of what the command had been in the past. And so Zerubbabel was also spoken of prophecy. So prophecy was in the Bible, but it's here for today too. But this is in Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, said the Lord of armies. So I'd like to break things down. Uh, the word might in that verse can be translated as human ability. So not by human ability, right? And what's the next one? Power. Not by power, might, or sorry, power can be translated as human strength. So not by human ability, you with me so far? Not by human strength. We don't fight our spiritual enemies with human ability or human strength, right? Ephesians 6, 12 says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. So we can't use human ability or human strength, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So not by might, human ability, by power, by human strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So we're told two times what not to do, and the third time what to do. So the word for spirit is ruah. Isn't that word fun to say? Say it with me, ruah. That's like, ah, yeah, ruah. Yeah, get a little gritty. Ah. There we go. It sounds powerful to say it out loud. And I had to look at the word ruah, and I, I pulled it up, and, and it's, it means the wind of God or the breath of God. Now, it's not, um, there's a whole bunch of, of uh, different meanings for breath and for wind, uh, but I just want to clarify here, the word ruah there wasn't talking about a breath like, like Eli, you can't feel me doing that, right? Like, you know, like a little puff. Or like the breeze you feel, a gentle breeze. No, it was, it was powerful. It was a, it says it was a, something that breathes quickly in animation or agitation, all right? So picture with me, we have God, the spirit of God's, not a breath of, but agitation expression. Now, I had to do this. Dad, thank you for doing this. I'm gonna grab a little, 
illustration of what I think the breath of God is, <laughs> right? You know, so I could turn that on. Like, I'm not going to blow my Bible off the, that'd be a bad illustration. But, you know, that's, that's the rule of God. How many of you guys get excited about that? I was using this yesterday. Dad, thank you for letting me borrow it to blow some leaves off. And it was a whole lot more impactful and effective than me trying to puff it off with my mouth. And so we can't underestimate God by saying spirit like it's a puff of breath, but it's powerful. It's ruah. And it's time that we, come, we start with the right tools for the job. You know, Paul, Paul Smucker, others who are landscapers here, they can't show up with their, their breath and try to blow the leaves off the driveway. They show up with a tool like that, and that's the right tool for the job. So as we establish a place where God can be enthroned, if we build temples where he can dwell, know that the wind of heaven is blowing in your favor. And it's not a part-time thing. It's not a timeshare access that he has. It's all the time. So um, why was Zerubbabel instructed this way? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Um, Zerubbabel's name means one sown in Babylon. Um, and it, it probably means that he, his parents were exiled and he was born in exile. So he was conceived and he, he grew up in exile and captivity in Babylon. Now, Zerubbabel probably saw how the Babylonians did things, right? If you grow up in that, that country, you're going to see the way they work and the way they operate. Now, Babylon was a pretty mighty city. You can look at historical sources outside of the Bible, and you can see that they did some pretty amazing stuff. They were also a conquering land, which is why they had conquered Israel. They were powerful. They used tools of conquering. They used tools of authority. They used tools of warfare to accomplish what they, they thought was in purpose. Um, we see in Ezra 6 that the temple was finally completed, um, but we didn't see Zerubbabel's name in attendance. He's mentioned only once in Nehemiah. So in, in Ezra 6, they have a great celebration. They, the temple was finally done, but they don't list out Zerubbabel's being there. Zerubbabel at the time had been promoted even from just a builder and an overseer and a, and a foreman, but also a governor. But, so why wasn't Zerubbabel there? Um, now, it's a, it's a kind of a mystery about why he isn't in the Bible. Though some of the clues we have is that in the book of Nehemiah, which happens right after Ezra, um, it says that Nehemiah succeeded Zerubbabel as governor. So Zerubbabel was a governor for a little bit of time, and then he was succeeded or replaced by Nehemiah. Um, but some scholars have suggested that Zerubbabel has shifted from rebuilding the temple, his first job, his primary call, his original purpose, and began to mix in a desire to have an increased power by governmental authority. Now, there's nothing wrong with governmental authority. Praise God for people like B. Diff, who's going after authority in, in the school, uh, school board. But the problem with Zerubbabel is that wasn't his call and his place. He was called to build a place where God could dwell, and he decided to mix it up. Maybe, perhaps, and this is a little bit of speculation, Zerubbabel had grown up and kind of tried to carry too many of the ways of Babylon into the ways of, of Israel. Now, we don't know that for sure, so I'm not going to throw Zerubbabel under the bus, but it's important, again, we don't mix things up. We don't mix up the ways of Babylon with the ways of God in our lives. And we are called to use the right tools for the job, right? Not a puff of air, but the full ruah spirit of God. So, even with that said, I'm kind of skipping through Ezra, but we land in Ezra chapter 8, and we see kind of a sad note. Um, uh, there's two problems in Ezra 8. First of all, the altar is done, the temple is built, right? But there's still no city walls. Now, I'm going to talk about that next week in ne about Nehemiah. So there's, there's still no walls in Ezra's time and place, and the city is defenseless. And worse is the people started mixing. Just like my oatmeal, they started mixing it up with the people of the land. And it says they married, um, married into the land, but not just marrying, they picked up the ways of the land. Um, and they followed the ways and practices and abominations. That's a hard word to say too. In Ezra 9.1, it says these abominations, including worshiping gods of their own creation and uh, gods of Molech, which is child sacrifice, um, they, they really they embraced everything, not just marrying into it, but embracing the ways and behaviors and the wrong things of the people in the group. So before I talk about the walls, and I'll get to that next week, but uh, we'll tackle the second issue too about marrying. So what does it mean to marry somebody? You know, you're sharing uh, the most intimate level physically, 
um, emotionally, spiritually. The picture is not just one of holding somebody closely, but beginning the journey of oneness, right? The two shall become one is what the Bible says. Um, that's a, marriage is probably the best picture of unity. When it's done right, it's a picture of unity in God. And here again is an example of unity, except at this point, the Jews were unified in the wrong way. They had unified themselves as the people of the land. And Ezra 2, not, sorry, Ezra 9, verse 2 reports that the leaders and the officials had taken the lead, had even taken the lead in unfaithfulness towards God. So can you imagine that now? Not only do the people marry, but their leaders, the ones that they are supposed to be looking up to, had taken the lead and instead of leading them back to God, had led them away from God and further on by giving them the wrong example to follow. So Ezra, upon hearing this, Ezra 9, uh, 3 and 4, if you're following it with me, he tore his robes, he pulled hair from his beard and his head, and he grieves. Now, I've never pulled hair from my beard or head on purpose, but that's got to be a serious expression of grief, for sure. Um, most importantly, though, more than just pulling his hair and grieving, is that Ezra does something about it. Um, what happens next sounds radical, but the first thing we want to talk about is that Ezra, he not only grieved, he took the first step and he repented before anybody else. And we live in a day and an age, and we live in a, in a, in a, a time, in a purpose, in a place where we contend for revival in this land, in our church, in our homes, in our region, right? We contend for all those things, and we desire those own things. And if we ever desire to see righteousness in our nation, we had to repent first. We had to be like an Ezra in a nation to do it before anybody else does. That's the simplest expression. Like Pastor Steve talked about leading by example, which means to lead, do something before anybody else does. I'm not going to try to demonstrate dancing. He's better at that for sure. But Ezra took the lead he repented first. And it's a reminder that we have to be the first in line to repent, to do, what, do first what no one else is doing. So next, Ezra takes, leads the assembled Jews in taking an inventory of the people who had married into sin. That sounds pretty crazy, doesn't it? Just think about that for a second. Like, um, to look around and um, to see the sin in a, in a region and to take inventory um, now, I'm not suggesting that we do that today. I'm not suggesting that we say, well, that person's a sinner and that person's an add them to the list of sinners. No. What I am saying is that we need to be that conscientious and that thorough and that complete about taking inventory in our own lives um, for the sin of ourselves and what is separating us, you know, um, so that we have no mixture. You know, as I say, as in a journey with Jesus, take an inventory Think about these questions. Are there unholy alliances that we've held close, that I've held close? What are you doing about it? You know, there's, and I had to remind, before you maybe feel um, condemnation or you feel the weight of judgment or you even start saying, God, you know, what's, what's going on? We, we need to invite God to speak into our lives. And Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. We need to allow God to search our hearts, to allow him to give an inventory to our lives. And sometimes he does a much better, well, sometimes, all the time, he does a better job at doing a search in a much more gentle way. I know for sure that if I'm in need of heart surgery, I don't want, I don't want to do it myself. I want God to be doing it to me. And so as we do an inventory, um, you know, maybe you're thinking, that's just as heavy to end on, Todd. You know, Ezra does end in a heavy note. And it says in Romans 2, 4, that God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's goodness and mercy are following after us, pursuing us. In the end of Psalm 23, it says that. There's a need for us to stop running away from God. It's almost like we're giving God more trouble by trying to run away from his goodness and mercy. And the picture of Psalm 23 is that he's chasing after us. Uh, in John um, 8, 32 and 36, Jesus was teaching in the temple one day. And he says something you, you, you might have heard before. He says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let me turn to this for a second. You can turn with me, John 8. He said, if you continue in my words, then you are, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I want to just talk about this for a second. The people answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it you say you will become free? Well, 
I just told you guys a story about being enslaved, Ezra, right? So these people were kind of crazy as it is. They're, they have been enslaved before. They have been uh, captives to nations before. But these people, perhaps, they were living in a new generation. They, they were not remembering the his, history of their own people when they were saying this. And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, and everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And if we read just that verse, we get a picture of condemnation. We get a picture of this is really awful. Uh, sin is slavery. And if I sin, I'm a slave to sin. But the next verse, keep reading. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. Now we can read verse 35 for a second as a picture of like, well, that means the slave's not a slave forever because he's kicked out of the house, like we're punished for eternity in hell. No, I don't believe that's what it says. I believe it says that the slavery that we're in right now, the sins that, we, that hold us enslaved are only meant to be temporary. And that should give us encouragement. Maybe you can think of the worst sin in your life. Maybe you're still struggling with it and you're saying, I don't see a way out of that. And that this passage here, John 8, 35 says, that the slave does not remain in the house forever. Is that slavery, the sin that you're slave to? There's a time period on that. There's an expiration date on it. Um, the son does remain forever. I believe this verse is also speaking to the identity God is calling us to as we're called into the unity and purpose he has for us. It's to not be slaves anymore, to not think of us as temporary status. Remember that timeshare? Not to think of ourselves as timeshare sons of God, but to see ourselves as full sons in God. The son does remain forever. Verse 36, so if the son sets you free, you really will be, you really will be free. Another translation says, you are free indeed. So I share this passage because we can get a picture of, of um, the heaviness of the end of Ezra. Ezra ends, the last chapter, chapter 9, ends with an inventory of all the people that have sinned. And we don't know what happened to the walls. And there was a time period now where we're left hanging. The story is not finished, but that should give us some hope too. Because for each of us, the story isn't finished yet in our lives. If you're saying today that I feel hopeless and I feel uh, incomplete, I feel like there's still uh, things that are marring my life, there's things that are still causing me to be a slave, we need to take hope, not in how Ezra ends, but that how Ezra is just the, um, Ezra's not the end of the story. And so I'd like to pray with you guys as we remember and are called into the unity and purpose of God that we receive all what God does and cleanses us, our hearts today. So God, Father God, we ask that you would um, search us and know us, to take an inventory of our hearts and our lives. God, that you would see if there's any wicked way in us and you would bring us and cleanse, uh, cleanse us, God, that you would set us free, Jesus, in your name. God, thank you for uh, building us as temples to take the new covenant stance of of uh, making us, our bodies, as temples of the Holy Spirit where you can dwell. God, we desire to be one with you. We desire not to mix anything else in there, in the way. God, we thank you that you are good and your goodness and mercy is following after us. And we bless your name. We desire to be unified with you, Jesus. So we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.